Two weeks ago, we saw in verses 18 through 25 that Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the power of the gospel and the message of Christ crucified. While others are trying to find ways to entertain people or wow people, Paul says that that is not showing the power of God. And so Paul says, if you look at your text, this won't be on the screen, in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Essentially, what was happening here in this Corinthian church, as we've been seeing, is that the Corinthians are struggling from some major pride issues. They have pride in who they were as a people. They have pride in who baptized them. They have pride in how they came to know Jesus. They have pride in how they share Jesus with others. And Paul's argument in this section that we're going to cover today, Lord willing, verses 26 through verse 5 of chapter 2, is simply this. You have nothing to boast in yourself about, Corinthians. Nothing. And the same can be true of us here today as well. We have nothing within ourselves that we could brag about and boast about, about what we've done, who we are, where we've been, what we've accomplished. Nothing. Especially when it comes to the preaching of the cross or the preaching of the gospel or really all of our lives. You cannot boast about how you have found your identity in Christ. You cannot boast about how you've been saved or you saved yourself. And here's big... Here's Paul's big point in this whole passage. Look at verse 29. We're going to get to verse 29 in order, but here's the main point. I just want to give the main point out of the way first. In verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is what Paul is trying to attack here from the Corinthian thinking. They're bragging way too much, and they're boasting in the wrong things. Remember, I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. I belong to Peter. You're boasting in the wrong things. No one can boast about anything, and God has set it up exactly like that. And how Paul is going to destroy this thinking among them And he begins in verse 26. He asks them to do something. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. The word calling there is, of course, in relation to their salvation. This word is used throughout the New Testament to describe how God saves sinners. How are sinners saved? This word means literally to summon. Which means then that God summons sinners to himself. And that is how they have faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. The word summon literally means come here. Come here. God gives the invitation to come. But he does more than just give the invitation. He enables sinners to come by his calling. And the question then is who called who? Consider your calling, brothers. Did you call on the Lord and that's why you're saved? 
Or did God call you? Consider your calling. Let's examine how we came to faith in Jesus. And let's see what you have to brag about. Who called who? Well, you say, well, I called upon the name of the Lord and I was saved. And yes, you did. And that is the promise that the scriptures give us, right? That, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans ten thirteen. We know that verse very well. However, think about this for a moment. If that promise of salvation was dependent upon us, that we called upon the name of the Lord and God responded to us rather than us responding to God, then we would have something to boast about. If our receiving the call or calling upon God was to be given credit to us, then we can boast when we get to heaven later. Hey, you know why I'm here? I made the call. I made the call to God. I was smarter than other people who didn't make the call to God. So, you know what? I'm partly here because of me. Wrong. Consider your calling, brothers. You can't take credit for calling upon the name of the Lord because calling upon the name of the Lord, which produces faith and repentance in the sinner, is itself a gift of the grace of God. You didn't find God. God found you. God doesn't need to be found because he was never lost. You were, and I was. And therefore, it is God who calls people to himself. And when God calls people to himself, it is seen by people calling upon the name of the Lord. It's because God makes the call first. We respond to the work of the Spirit in our hearts, given by God's grace. It's the Holy Spirit who is calling sinners to come here. Come here. And the scriptures speak of this calling as effectual. It's the effectual calling of God or irresistible call, which means that it works every time. When the Spirit of God works in the heart of a sinner and and lightens their heart and removes the blinders and gives them that heart of flesh and removes that heart of stone, it is then that we see the work of God coming to fruition in the salvation of rebels like us. It is God by his spirit that is saying, come here. And it is so beautiful once we see it. It is so beautiful and awesome. And it makes sense when the spirit opens our hearts to such things that we can't help but say yes. Yes, I want to be saved. Yes, I want to call on the Lord to be saved. All of that is not a result because you're smart or you figured it out or you're at the right place at the right time. No, all of that is in part credit 100% to the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit in the hearts of sinners, saving his elect to himself. And Paul makes his point very clearly in verses that we know very well. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. And here's the purpose. Here's the reason so that no one may boast. Salvation is of the Lord. 
It begins with the Lord and it ends with the Lord. And in no way, shape, or form can we take even 0.00001% credit. And if we could, then guess what? Then we have something to boast about, even if it's 0.00001%. The reason God works in these ways is so it could be clearly seen and evident that no human being has any right to boast in themselves when it comes to being saved. Why? Because it is all by God's grace. Grace is not just an opportunity or a chance not to go to hell. Grace is actually the enablement and the empowerment of God to save sinners who see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ by the awakening of the Holy Spirit. And all this is from God, not your own doing, and it is a gift. Not just that salvation is a gift, but the faith to believe in Christ is itself a gift to be saved. And so, who has God called to be his people? Look around you. <laughs> just look around to some of you people. I mean, seriously, God saved us? I mean, just think about this for a minute. Maybe you're saying, well, I know why God called me. He could use somebody like me. <laughs> and to that I would say what Paul says to the Corinthians. Consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling. Who called who? God did not choose you or call you to be his because you had a lot to offer him. God did not save you because you're rich or good-looking or think you're good looking, or talented, or intelligent, or charming, or savvy, or you're a good speaker. God didn't say, boy, I could use one of him on my team, or one of her on my team. No. God chose you in him apart from yourself. In fact, he chose us in spite of ourselves. That's what grace means. Consider who we are. Consider who you are. The world seeks to puff itself up with pride. The world says to think more of yourself, but the gospel says think less of yourself. Because when we think less of ourselves, we are thinking of ourselves truly, that we stand before a holy God needing his mercy. Who are we? We are but dust. We come from the dust. And when we die, we return to the dust. We are but dust that has been formed by God and to be his image bearers. Image bearers of the eternal, holy, and awesome God of all creation. But remember who you are. You are from the dust. The next time you want to brag, remember where you come from. We come from the dirt we belong to our father Adam by birth. How did God make Adam? From the dust of the ground, he breathed into it, and he became a living soul. This is why the Hebrew word for man is Adam. Hence, we say Adam. But Adam is the same word as dirt. Yeah, Adam is the dirt man. He's the dust guy. That's who we are. We come from the dust. We return to the dust. But God, seeking to glorify himself, takes living, breathing particles of dirt who willfully rebel against him and saves us for his glory. 
Why? Why? It's not because we needed it. We did need it. Not because we deserved it or we were worthy enough. But we are rebels. We're dirt. But we have value. Not because of who, what we have done, but because who has made us, because who has died for us. Christ purchased us with his own blood. The next time you think you need to be lifted up on a high pedestal, remind yourselves of that. You are who you are by the grace of God. God does not call us to be saved because we are worthy. He does not call us to be saved because we have a lot to offer him. He calls us and saves us in spite of us. It it reminds me a lot of what God said to Israel in the Old Testament. As they are getting ready to enter the promised land, God reminds his covenant people, Israel, why he chose them. And God is very honest. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. He reminds them right before they enter the promised land. Moses says to them from God, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yeah, you just chosen people. Yeah, you chosen people. Why did I choose you? Is it because you think you're all that? You're all special? No. In fact, you had nothing to offer me. You, you weren't even a lot of people. There were a lot more other people on earth that were much more talented, much more wiser, much more in number, much more resourceful. But I chose you. Why? Because I loved you. I chose you to be my treasured position out of all the peoples on the earth. You see, and this is something that we see throughout the scriptures. God does things the opposite the way that man does them. And this is the point that Paul is trying to drive home to them. You Corinthians are boasting in yourselves. You're boasting in your favorite preacher. You're boasting in how you share the gospel with other people. But don't you know that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? He does things the opposite way. He does things the impossible way so that when people look at the things that God has done, they have to step back and say, I don't know how it happened. Only God can do that. I wouldn't have done it that way. And that's the point. That's the point. When you look at our salvation, brothers and sisters, there there probably were other ways Could have been other human ways to save the world, to save a people for himself. But God didn't do that. He chose through the preaching of a crucified Messiah who rose again from the dead to save those who believe. Wow. We preach Christ crucified. Consider your calling, brothers. 
What do you have to boast about? What do you have to boast about? And now Paul makes a point out of their calling. He continues in verse 26. And he asks them to consider now their backgrounds. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Remember the word wise there means philosopher. How many of you are philosophers, Corinthians? How many of you are considered to be the most intelligent, well-respected people of the day? Not many. And not many of you are Harvard and Yale graduates. Not many of you have all these degrees hanging on your wall. That's what he would say to us today. According to worldly standards. Now, here's the thing. There were some who were considered wise according to worldly standards, but not many. And not many were powerful. The word here, powerful, can be mean influential. How many of you were influential or in charge? How many people wielded the sword with authority? How many politicians and leaders did God save? Not many of you were that kind of people. Some perhaps were influential. Some were in positions of power. But being powerful isn't God's standard of who he calls to himself. Being wise according to world standard isn't the standard of why and who God calls to himself. Thirdly, he says, not many were of noble birth. How many of you are from rich families or well-to-do parts of society? Not many. Now think about this. Even if those things were something to boast about, even if something being wise and influential and of nobility, even if those things were something to boast about, about why God chose you, or why God called you to himself. Now think what God does here. He takes those who can boast about being wise, powerful, and nobility, and he puts them with who? Those who are not. He saves them with those who were not wise, according to worldly standards, not powerful, and not of noble birth. He puts the wise, the powerful, and those who are noble, and puts them with those who are not wise, commoners, and poor. So if God saved you because you were rich, and then put you with those who are poor, what do you have to brag about? If God saved you because you're influential and powerful, and then he put you on the same level as the commoner citizen, what do you have to brag about? Because now in Jesus Christ, you're all the same. Consider your calling, brothers. Even if that were something to brag about, look what God has done to humble you and show you that you need the same grace in Jesus as everybody else. And this is God's method. And God does this on purpose. He doesn't choose the wise, the powerful, the influential, those who are noble. Some of them, yes, not many. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Why? Because the worldly thinking is you wouldn't save the world by crucifying a, mis- crucifying a Jewish man in Jerusalem and telling Gentiles in Corinth to believe in him. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, let's answer the question. What is, what, God chose what is foolish in the world. What does the world think is foolish? The cross. Remember, that's what Paul says in verse 18. To those who are perishing, the word of the cross is foolishness. What does the world think is weak? The cross. You mean your God died? Your God was whipped and tortured and crucified by the most powerful people of our day? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, that's a message I'm going to believe. God chose what is foolish according to worldly standards. God chose what is considered to be weak according to worldly standards. God chose what is low and despised. What is that? The cross. Today, as Christians, we put the cross and we remind ourselves of the greatness of God. But in the first century, nobody would do that. That would be the equivalent of everyone walking around with an electric chair as a charm on their necklace. Can you imagine that? Does anyone have an electric chair on their charm on their necklace today? No. Does anyone decorate their house with electric chairs? No. Why? Because of what it represents. And here is Paul preaching what? Christ crucified. It's the cross. It's the cross. And people are like, that's not how you're going to build a big church, Paul. That's exactly what we're going to do. Why? Because that's what God uses so that no human being can boast that they did it. He does it the exact opposite way so that what? God gets the glory, not man. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Wow. And yet in the cross, we all find equal footing. We come all from all different walks of life. No matter how smart you are, no matter how powerful you are, how influential you are, no matter your cultural or ethnic background, no matter your job, no matter how big your house or your bank account or how nice a car you drive, when all is said and done, all people will have to enter the door of eternal life to escape the, cross, escape the wrath of God. And that door is found in the person of Jesus Christ and his cross. The cross, what God, what the world thinks is foolish and weak and despised. That is what God uses. So then when people step back and say, I don't know what's going on here, but I wouldn't do it like that. That's the point. Because only God can do that. Only God can save the world this way. And then we get to the point that, which we've already hammered home. Verse 29, so that no human being, why does God do it this way? Might boast in the presence of God. You know, God has always done it this way. Always. He's always used foolish things to confound the wise. He's always taken what seemed impossible to bring about something to pass that he willed. For example, God 
used Joseph, the most hated of Jacob's sons, who was sold as a slave, falsely accused of rape, forgotten about in prison, to rise to second in command under Pharaoh in Egypt. That very brother who was hated by his brothers, forgotten about in prison, falsely accused, it was that very brother Joseph who wound up, what, saving his brothers and the world from famine. Is that something Joseph can brag about? No, because that's something only God can do. It was God who used a, a Hebrew baby, hidden by his mother in the reeds in a basket on the river, to place him out of sight from Pharaoh who had ordered his death, who then was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. It was God who used this baby to go stand before Pharaoh later and to say, the God of Israel says, let my people go. Does that make sense? Not from a human perspective. Why? Only God can do that. It was God who took the youngest of Jesse's sons, a shepherd boy, not even thought highly of his father's, not even thought of highly of his father or by his brothers. David, who couldn't even fit into armor to protect himself in battle, who slung a stone in the forehead of a nine-foot, nine-inch Goliath from Gath, who then fell down face forward, who then the shepherd boy cuts off his head and leads the nation in victory. I mean, who would have wrote that kind of story? Only God. It was God who led Joshua to lead the armies of Israel around the fortified city of Jericho and command them to simply blow a trumpet on the seventh day in the seventh time. And when they did that, the walls of Jericho would come falling down. That doesn't make sense from a physical standpoint, from a structural standpoint. Blow a trumpet and the walls fall down? Why does God do it that way? So he gets the glory. It wasn't because they had good trumpet players, trust me. It was God who placed a beautiful Jewish girl named Esther in the middle of the Persian Empire for, quote, such a time as this. To win a beauty contest, which allowed her to be the queen of Persia, who then put her in a position to appeal to the king to foil the plans of an evil man who plotted the destruction of her people. Is this something that Queen Esther can brag about? No. Only God. It was this God who sent his son, who gave his son to take on human flesh, the eternal son of God. In all his glory, left heaven to become a man. And how does God do that? Through a powerful and rich family in Rome? The global military superpower of its day? No. Through a teenage mother betrothed to a carpenter. A Jewish carpenter. A Jewish teenage mother. 
Amazing. How does he save them? Does he rise to power as king and takes a sword and kills Caesar? No. He gives himself by becoming a substitute on that Roman cross. As he endured and absorbed the wrath of God the Father for all those that the Father has given to him. And then he resurrects from the dead three days later. Again, not a story anybody would write. And that's on purpose. How about the national repentance of a wicked city like Nineveh? God who chose as a disobedient prophet named Jonah, who runs the opposite way, who's prejudiced. And then God sends a big fish to swallow him. And for three days, he's in this fish and dies. And then God brings him back to life again. And the big fish spits him out onto dry ground. And he simply goes into this wicked city of Assyria. A city that took three days to walk through. People who hate the God of Israel. Who hate the Jewish people. And here's Jonah preaching repentance. And the city gets saved and repents. I guarantee you there's no church growth strategist or mega church that would plan it like that. Why? Because God wants the glory. Consider your calling, brothers. <laughs> Consider your calling. Who are you? Who are you? The first thing that destroys all boasting is to consider our calling. The second thing that we should consider that destroys all boasting is all that we have been given is given to us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. Corinthians, you think you're special because you've got some worldly wisdom? In verse 30, he says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All we have had in the past, all we will ever have in the future, all we have now is given to us in Jesus Christ. Christian, you don't have anything apart from him. What do we have? Well, he breaks it down. We have true wisdom for living. Now, what's Paul doing here? He's going after the things that they want. Worldly wisdom. And he says, you want real wisdom? It comes from God in Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. He's all you need for wisdom for living. Put away this foolish man-centered philosophy now. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We have real righteousness with God. What does that mean? Right standing before him. He has justified us by faith. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, we are declared righteous. 
We are declared righteous. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he has earned by his obedience to God's law and faithful life. And God treats us who believe in Jesus as if we are Jesus. Why? Because he treated Jesus as if he were us. We have righteousness from God in Jesus Christ. God did this by his active obedience and passive obedience. We have sanctification. God doesn't just leave us to be the kinds of people we were. He changes us. He transforms us. He makes us holy. And we have redemption. God has purchased us in Christ. He has made us to be his own people. We do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to him. And then you get, look at verse 31. You want something to boast about, Corinthians? You want something to brag about? And by the word, the word boast there in the Greek means literally to glory in oneself. There's other uses of the word which I found very fitting. The word has also been used to, to denote a swelling. I guess having a big head meant something back then too. A swelling or a boasting to glory in oneself. You want something to brag about? Look at verse 31. Why did God do all this? Why did he give us all these things in Jesus Christ? So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to boast? You better boast about what you have and who you are and who you belong to. Because you have nothing apart from him. Boast in the Lord. You want to brag? Brag about Jesus. Brag about him. Boast about him. Glory in him, not yourself. Because who are we without him? We are a bunch of dust bunnies that will one day be held accountable to a holy God. That's who we are. Paul reminds them of this same truth in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that's not being given to you? Well, I worked for it. Good. Who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the job? Who gave you the talents? Who gave you the energy? God, God, God. Who gave you the gifts that you possess? The talents you have? God. If it weren't for God, you'd be dead. None of us should be breathing. We all deserve to die. That's the wages of sin. But God, by his mercy, God, by his mercy, gives us grace in Jesus Christ. Everything has been given to you by God. Everything. The time you've been given and every breath that you breathe is a gift from God. Even how you use your time you know, we all love to make plans. Even our time to make those plans is a gift from God. We say, oh, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to do that tomorrow. Says who? Well, I have a 10-year plan. Good. It's good to have goals. But guess what? Only if God gives it to you. This is what James says in James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Brothers and sisters, we are commended to say, Lord willing. Lord willing, this is what I hope to do if the Lord allows it. Lord willing. Boasting in this life in oneself is as silly as this next illustration that's given to us in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10, God says to Isaiah, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. The axe wouldn't cut anything unless it was molded that way. The axe wouldn't cut anything unless it was sharpened. The axe wouldn't cut anything unless someone lifts it and swings it. Should the axe take credit for its master? Of course not. No, it was the master who molded it, sharpened it, and swung it that deserves all the credit. And the same thing with all of our lives. In chapter 2, Paul begins by giving them an example and reminding them that this is not something he's preaching without practicing. He actually, when he came to them, modeled this kind of ministry. They went off track. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. You guys got all sidetracked and all this philosophy garbage, all this human wisdom. You guys got all sidetracked about who's the better speaker, Apollos or Peter or me. Did I come to you preaching in that kind of power? Did I come with reliance on human wisdom or, or eloquent speech? No. For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I came to Corinth, and you can read about it in Acts 18. When I first came to Corinth, what does he say? I didn't come relying on my skills or abilities. I came and I only wanted to know one thing. Do you know Jesus who died on the cross for your sins? That's all I want to know about you, Corinthians. I don't care about how rich or how smart or how influential you are. Do you know the crucified king of glory? That's all that matters. That's all that matters. For when you die and stand before him, the question that God asks you won't be how much is in your bank account or how many people you helped or served or how many good works that you have done. The only thing that matters is did you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him alone? Period. I, I didn't want to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul is simply saying here, hey, if I come back and see you again, I better not be hearing any debates about who is better, me or Apollos. Tell me about Jesus. Brag about Jesus. Boast in Christ alone, not me. Not your baptism, not this or that or the other. 
I want to know nothing among you except him, Jesus Christ crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Remember, persecution was awaiting Paul. They're banging down at his door. He had escaped out of a basket out the window. I wasn't powerful and strong among you. Paul says, I preach this message in great weakness and fear, trembling, trembling for fear of God and for fear of your souls. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, which they were relying on. Like, make it make sense to us, Paul. No. Whether it makes sense to you or not, that's up to you and the work of God in your heart. I'm just telling you the truth. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I didn't come preaching eloquent words or plausible words of wisdom. No, I came to you fear and trembling, only wanting to know one thing. Do you know the one who died for you? And if it doesn't make sense to you, all I can do is give you the truth. That's all I've been commanded to do. Jesus Christ died for sinners. If you're perishing, you're going to think that's foolishness. If you're going to be saved, you're going to think that's the power of God. But why does God do it this way? There's got to be another way, Paul. No, there's not. Verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. No one in Corinth can say, I figured it out because Apollos used all these worldly methods to convince me. No, if that was the truth, then Apollos could boast. The philosophers could boast. But that's not what God does. God does it this way. So that when you look back at your life, when you look back to the day that you were saved, when you look back to how your eyes were open and your heart leaped for joy when you heard the gospel and you repented of your sins, you look back at it, you're like, I don't know how it happened, but all I know is that it happened. And that I went from trusting in myself to trusting in Jesus alone. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And when you could say that, you look back and say, this had to be the power of God. Can you imagine Lazarus for a moment with me in John chapter 11? Dead in the tomb. In paradise. With the other righteous ones. Who have passed. All of a sudden, Jesus comes to his tombstone and says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus awakes bound in grave clothes, and he stinketh, by the way. 
That's the King James Version of that verse. He stinketh because he'd been dead for four days. He wakes up from being in paradise. And Jesus gave him life. What does he do? Well, let me explain to you how I came back to life. Let me give you all the scientific explanation and the philosophical arguments of why I'm standing before you. No. What's Lazarus going to say? I was dead, and boy, I stink, and now I'm alive. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. God, Jesus raised me from the dead. And this is our stories, brothers and sisters. We don't know how it happened, but we know we didn't do it. We know that God did it. He gave us faith. He saved us. He enabled us to repent. It's just like the blind man in John chapter 9. The guy's blind all his life. He comes out, and the people who used to see him blind and begging says, what happened to you? I don't know what happened to me. All I'm going to tell you is this. I was blind, but now I can see. End of story. Oh, yeah, by the way, that guy over there did it. Nothing to boast about in the, for the blind man. Nothing to boast about for Lazarus. But we boast in Christ. We boast in Jesus. We boast in the gospel. The gospel is the announcement, the proclamation that the king has given to the world. That you don't have to endure the wrath of God for your sins. That you can be saved today. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus alone, know that he's God, that he's Lord, that he died for your sins, repent, and that he rose again from the dead. The wind blows where it wants, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. We don't know how it happens. It just does. And God does that on purpose. So when you can't figure it out, it's probably good news. When it doesn't make sense, oh, it's time to give the glory to God. Two verses and we're done. Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And Paul says to the Galatians, who are boasting in their circumcision, who are boasting in their dietary obedience to God's law. What does Paul says to the Galatians, who are being infiltrated by false teachers? But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Why? Because Jesus did it all. So, boast in the Lord. 
If you find yourself boasting in yourself when it comes especially to why you think you're going to heaven, I'm a good person. I go to church. I'm a teacher. I don't smoke or drink or fool around or haven't stolen many things or lied. I'm, I'm an okay person. If you think you're an okay person and can get to heaven because you're an okay person and you haven't done too many bad things, guess what? You're not going to heaven. I'm standing and telling you that on the authority of God's word, you're boasting in yourself. Your boasting needs to be in Christ alone. Because the Bible says we're born dead in sin, under God's wrath. And we will have God's wrath abiding on us unless we obey the Son and trust in the good news of the gospel. I pray, friend, today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus in that way, if you're boasting in yourself, thinking that you can work your way there or pay your way there or come to church and get there, I'm praying for you today that you will stop your boasting in him, become born again and get saved. I'd love to talk to you more on how that works. How you can know this Jesus according to what the Bible says to know him and how you could truly boast in him. Lots of testimonies over the years I've heard are not testimonies, they're bragamonies. Let us not have bragamonies, friends. Let's have a testimony about the one who did it all for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious and holy word. Thank you for what you are encouraging us today, God, that we may boast in Jesus alone, that we would know nothing among each other or ourselves except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Humble us, God, and bring us underneath the hand of the conviction of the Holy Spirit Father, I pray that you would kill our pride, that you would kill our boasting in ourselves. God, that you would draw people to yourself by your Holy Spirit this morning, whether they're in this room or watching online, that they would truly know what it means to trust in you, to believe in you, to know Jesus in a saving way, so that all our boasting would be in him, zero percent in ourselves. All my boast is in Jesus. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing this closing song again. Very fitting at the end of our sermon today. And now that you've heard the sermon and you've heard the word of God, I pray that these words would mean even more to you as you sing them now. May all your boasts be in Jesus. I'd love to help you. If I could talk to you after the service, please let me know. Let's sing.